0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a grim tally. 504 Coloradans died from opiate-related overdoses last year, a new record. Opiates, of course, are often prescribed for pain relief. As CPR health reporter John Daly explains, overdose deaths are starting to overtake other causes of death.
1: A recent rally marked International Overdose Awareness Day. People who've lost loved ones are pushing for more government action to decrease drug overdose deaths. Lisa Rayville directs the Harm Reduction Action Center. It helps people who use drugs and their families.
2: We are in the midst of an overdose epidemic in our community. If you don't know somebody, you know somebody who knows somebody that has passed away due to overdose. We're losing a lot of good people, and I'm sick of it.
1: New health department numbers document the human toll. 300 people died from an opioid overdose in Colorado in 2016. A lethal dose of heroin claimed another 228 lives. Together, those two causes now rival deaths from car accidents, diabetes, or chronic liver disease. Robert Valak heads a Colorado consortium for drug abuse prevention. He says the state's figures echo the national trend. The numbers are
0: just mind-boggling, and they're going up. More people dying every year than died in the entire Vietnam War. A 9-11 equivalent every two and a half weeks.
1: The jump in heroin deaths is jaw-dropping when compared with, say, 15 years ago. In 2001, 23 Colorado residents died from a heroin overdose. By 2016, the number spiked to almost 10 times that. Valick says driving the numbers are the illegal cross-border drug trade and cheaper prices for heroin. He says most heroin users start with opioid pills.
3: Prescribed opioids that are left over, that are in the medicine cabinet and then are non-medically used by somebody else.
1: What starts as pain relief can spiral into dependence, drug tolerance, and addiction. Vernon Lewis responds to overdoses for the Harm Reduction Center. He's administered the reversal drug naloxone to save more than 100 people. He says the problem has blown up in recent years.
2: A lot of it has to do with kids thinking this is the cool thing to do. Lewis says he has struggled with addiction himself. You don't realize how uncool it is until you find yourself with an opiate addiction that you need this drug. It's a real physical addiction that demands you go out and do what you need to do to get that.
3: There's too many dying from this and it it doesn't have to be that way.
1: Helen Alviar lost her son, Leo, at age 34 to an accidental heroin overdose. He was a father of two and self-taught musician who died in 2008. She took a poster with Leo's photo on it to the rally. It reads, addiction does not discriminate.
3: I carry his picture. I have a button that has his picture on it and I wear it with me every day. I take him with me wherever I go.
1: Alviar says her son died following a relapse after seeking treatment. She says the tragedy is that overdoses are preventable. LVR says both addiction treatment and the life saving reversal drug naloxone should be made more available.
3: People don't think about it and they think that these people are not worth saving. My son was worth it. LVR sits in
1: front of dozens of photos of Coloradans who died from fatal overdoses. One is Joelle Fairchild's son.
0: My son, Tony. Cast away October 22nd of 2014. He was found on 14th and Spear, right underneath the bridge there on the Cherry Creek path. He was alone. He died of a heroin
3: overdose.
1: Fairchild says her 27-year-old son, and only child, was an artistic person who loved skateboarding and music. She says Tony had ADHD, and that may have contributed to him self-medicating. It started with pot, then meth, then opioids.
0: I know he wanted to get off drugs. We found journals and he wrote about it. He was embarrassed by his addiction. And then, of course, because of that embarrassment, he wouldn't come around the family.
1: Tony lived his last two years on the street. His mom said he tried to get help but to no avail.
0: You're playing Russian roulette every time you inject.
1: Fairchild wears a button that reads End Stigma, End Shame, End Overdose. Earlier at the march, that's what activists shouted as they circled the Capitol. End. Overdose. End. They hope for Colorado, it's not just a chant, it's a wake-up call. I'm John Daly, CPR News.
0: It was a rude awakening for Cindy Ray Lutz when she learned her son was addicted to painkillers. He was in high school then. As is often the case, her son started with pills, then got got, uh, hooked on heroin. But she didn't know to look for signs. Lutz lives in Centennial, and she has written, When Your Heart Belongs to an Addict. And welcome to the program.
3: Good morning, Ryan.
0: Your son is alive today. Were there times that you didn't think he would survive?
3: Every day. Every day I would wake up and wonder what I was going to put on that day, thinking I might need to go ID his body, or I would get the call that he was dead. And uh, it doesn't make for a very—it doesn't make for any kind of life. And that's why I wrote the book, because the the uh, numbers are huge. They're incredible, the people that are dying from overdose— But what fails to get accounted for in all of that is all the people that love them that suffer, watching them destroy themselves and not knowing what to do and trying everything that you can think of to do and having it not work.
0: In John's story, we heard about the embarrassment that can also come along with addiction. Uh, Was that true for you as a mother? Was there embarrassment? Was there stigma to deal with?
3: A lot, uh, some of it might have been in my own mind, but not all of it, and I, I know I took on the role for a while um, as that of the mother of an addict, and that doesn't feel very good because it, it makes you feel like you have failed or you're less than, and um, it's hard when you watch other people seemingly have normal lives, which nobody ever really does, but um And your child is suffering so much and not doing the things like graduating from high school and, you know, the milestones. You don't see them. There's so much going on, going the other direction, that it uh, takes your breath away.
0: How did you deal with that, that voice either outside of you or inside of you that said, this is your fault, you're responsible for this, you're not a good mother? How do you deal with that voice?
3: I didn't deal with it well. I just kept trying harder. But the more I tried the more I failed because you can't make somebody get well that doesn't want to get well. And you're in a situation where nobody really knows what to do. And as the parent, if you can't help your child, you tell yourself, what good am I? If I can't help my own child, what good am I as a parent?
0: So is it coming to the realization that the drug was more powerful than your love or than your ability to help your son? Absolutely. And that was an awareness that took some time.
3: It took a long time because, uh, especially in this country, we are taught from a very young age to work hard and achieve and work hard and achieve, and your hard work will get you what you want and where you want to be. And you cannot find your way out of this box of addiction.
0: Your problems, uh, um, your son's problems, that is, with addiction really started in, in high school. Um, And those became your problems in many ways. Uh, How did they start?
3: Well, I think it started a few years earlier when they were experimenting with, with pot and alcohol. And in high school, they just decided to try something different in somebody's medicine cabinet. And I don't think any of them, any of the kids that were with him at the time doing this had any idea the implications that would happen.
0: How quickly that could become
3: habit-forming. Right. Right. Mm -hmm.
0: And I understand that in retrospect, there were a lot of behavioral changes that at the time you attributed to him just being a teenager.
3: Right. But I couldn't figure it out because I didn't know. It seemed like he was on something, but there were no signs that I knew of because I didn't even know what an opiate was. I was looking for something like marijuana uh, or drinking, something you could smell, but that wasn't the case. And then the telltale signs are um, they—actually, they become really thin, and sometimes they're really tired, sometimes they're agitated, and also they begin being quite manipulative and lying. They can look at you straight in the face— when you question them on something, tell you a bold-faced lie, and make you feel guilty for even asking it. Knowing
0: what you know now, do you think you would have interpreted the signs differently? And I know that in, in some ways that's an impossible question.
3: No, had, had I known earlier, I would have at least known what we were dealing with. And he would have been a lot younger, and we maybe could have taken some preventative measures at that time before things got way out of hand.
0: Eventually, he moved away from prescription drugs to heroin, and that's pretty common, as we heard in John's story, for folks to make that switch. How much of that is a cost issue, that that heroin, I think, is cheaper these days?
3: It's a cost and an availability issue. So when they crack down on opiates right now, the heroin rates increase. So they switch to heroin when they can't afford. At that time, the OxyContin pills were about $80 a pill, and they they build up. Their tolerance goes up, so they have to take more and more and more, and they can't afford it. So they have to switch to something cheaper or go steal something, sell it to a pawn shop, make some money, or find other ways to get the drug, and uh, they usually switch to smoking the heroin, which my son did. He never did shoot up heroin, but that would have been the next step.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Cindy Ray Lutz of Centennial. Her new book is called When Your Heart Belongs to an Addict. And I want to say that you are also on the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. And uh, we heard from the head of it in John Daly's piece. What perspective has that given you on your own experience? And your son's experience.
3: It has shown me that what I thought was a big, difficult monster is even bigger. Oh. And there are so many things to know about addiction, and and many of which none of us know. For instance, we still don't know. You know, there are not just one or two or three things that always we know cause addiction. And there are not just a few things that we know um, can fix or cure or heal addiction because not everybody's the same people don't react the same and there there's a lot of people doing a lot of good work in the consortium but still we don't have enough uh, treatment places maybe not even the right treatment rehabs are a whole nother story and uh, not everyone can agree so they're all trying not in the consortium but um In this country, not everybody can agree the right approach. There's so much division in everything these days that how do you come up with some kind of a a overall comprehensive program that is successful?
0: I think I'm hearing you say that the approach is piecemeal to addiction.
3: It appears to me to be that way. And you have to have a lot of the pieces to put together a good puzzle. But at the end of the day, as a parent or a loved one, if you know that your child's suffering from addiction and they want to get help, there's a very brief window in which you can um, get them help or they want to get help. And you don't know where to send them. and They don't know where to go. That's a problem.
0: There's a very brief window. That's interesting. Uh, your son was in rehab, I think, many times.
3: That's very common. Somebody early on told me that the average number of relapses is eight. And I was quite astounded, but something in me knew that she was right. And that is typical. Uh, These people in general, but um, I, I know of the younger generation, they go in, they come out, they go in, they come out. It's just kind of like a revolving door. And if you have the money, it can keep on revolving.
0: And when you say that there's a window for rehab... Do you mean that there's a a point where it's too late? What am I hearing you say with that window? No,
3: I mean the window for them to get help is one that they know they have a problem. They know they're addicted. They know they're sick. And there's a short period of time where they will want help or seek help before they get that next high.
0: I see. So this is a window that opens and closes it sounds like very quickly. And the question is, can you align services with that window of opportunity? Uh, You are careful not to make this new book, uh, When Your Heart Belongs to an Addict, too much about your son, but about your own journey. Because you you say that your son's story is his story to tell. But I, I would like to ask just briefly how he's doing.
3: He is doing very well. He's, he's doing amazing. I can't believe even how well he's doing. He's got his own business and is halfway through college, and I never thought those things would ever happen. In
0: this book, you reflect on what it's like to become, in a way, obsessed with someone's addiction. As a, as a mother, you found yourself really perseverating on how your son was doing, not only from day to day, but sort of hour to hour. You began our conversation by talking about waking up in the morning and thinking, is this the day that I have to ID his body? What is that like for a parent? What is that like for a spouse, for a loved one?
3: Well, we really lose our own sense of worth. So the the person who's addicted, they are seeking their happiness in the drugs, something outside of themselves. And we as the loved ones, or myself for sure... I sought my happiness in getting him well. That was my sole agenda, and as a parent, rightfully so. However, I lost a lot of my own self-worth and my own life, really, in that process.
0: Do you think that happens to many other parents?
3: It happens to most parents.
0: What would you change about how you approached it if you could?
3: I would recognize addiction uh, for the the power it has, I would know that I can only do so much to help my child or my loved one, because at the end of the day, you can do everything humanly possible, and unless they want or choose to get well, it's not going to happen.
0: But isn't that the impossible thing to tell a mother or a father in excruciating pain? You can only do so much.
3: It is But sometimes we put the weight of the world on our shoulders to try and make that happen. And when we finally are told you aren't responsible for getting them well, no matter how much you want it, it takes a little bit of that pressure off.
0: And what what can you achieve then in that new space in that with that freedom?
3: What I did was look at my own life And I learned that we're all addicts to a certain degree and that we all seek out our coping mechanisms outside ourselves to help us deal with the harshness of life. But they become obstacles in our path. So how do we reclaim our lives from the insanity of addiction?
0: Thank you for being with us.
3: You're quite welcome.
0: Cindy Raylotz of Centennial has written, When Your Heart Belongs to an Addict, a Healing Perspective. She's also a member of the Colorado Consortium for Drug Abuse Prevention. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Now your feedback in loud and clear. There are strong feelings about our series Breaking Bread. We invite Coloradans with different political views to sit around a dinner table and see if they can find common ground in the Trump era. Owen Nyberg of Greenwood Village... Questioned how the issue of race was handled in our most recent episode. Quote, I was disappointed by how easily both the commentator and those participating dismissed the racial hatred Trump has stirred by allowing a Trump supporter to simply let Trump off the hook with he can't control who supports him. If only this were simply all that is at hand. Unfortunately, our dear president has a long and rich history of racism and sexism, for that matter, stemming back a long, long time. End quote. But Frank Schwendy of Fort Collins sees it a bit differently. Perhaps the participants in Breaking Bread recognized that, for the purposes of coming together, it was more important to focus on issues than to be diverted by the hate spewed by our current federal administration's leader. Meanwhile, Julie Poppin of Boulder tweeted, "'Love this series. Great idea. Americans can unite around rational ideas to solve shared challenges.'" We also heard from Chris Register, who's from Houston. He's biking 50 miles a day and interviewing people he meets around the country. Colorado was the second-to-last state on his ride. Hawaii will come this winter. We caught up with him earlier this week as he climbed Loveland Pass.
4: I'm interested in what people think about America, what they think we're doing well, what they think we can improve on, you know, what values they think we have that Despite our diversity, which is a good thing, um, what do we have in common? What makes us a nation?
0: Register, who's a lawyer, plans to write a book about his cross-country conversations at the end of his ride. Jean Stracy of Denver emailed to see if we know about a project that's similar to our own breaking bread. She writes, thanks for your efforts to bring different political points of view together. I am wondering if you're aware of Make America Dinner Again, which has created a format for how to break bread while sharing different points of view. In the course of our work, Gene, we did learn about that project, and you can learn more at MakeAmericaDinnerAgain.com. There's also an exercise to try at home at CPRnews.org. Look for Breaking Bread and download an experiment around the topics of guns, climate change, and immigration. And if you do this, let us know how it turned out. Next up in Loud and Clear, my interview with the chairwoman of the Colorado Democratic Party, Morgan Carroll, drew a comment from Maria Orms of Thornton. She notes that when Carroll listed key issues ahead of the 2018 election, she failed to mention health care. Orms left this message.
4: I like when she listed the things that matter to people that health care was conveniently left out. Not only was it left out, but Ryan didn't even ask her about that. Healthcare is the number one issue in this country these days and I can't believe that that wasn't even talked about.
0: The issues Carol did list were wages, care for aging parents, the cost of childcare and student debt and international issues including the threat of nuclear war. Please keep your comments, questions and story ideas coming. Find all the ways to connect with us at cprnews.org/connect. RTD has hit another snag with its brand-new commuter rail lines, a decision by state regulators likely will push back even further the opening of the G-Line to Arvada and Wheat Ridge. It was supposed to be online last fall. This week's decision also means the transit agency must keep manning crossing gates along the airport line and the line to Westminster. This is one of many concerns facing RTD. There's also a driver shortage and a legislative error that's costing the transit agency money. Dave Genova is RTD's general manager, and he joins us from his office in Denver. Dave, welcome to the program.
5: Thank you, Ryan. Good morning.
0: And so concerns persist about those crossing gates coming down too early, staying down too long. But let's start with what, what this means for the line that hasn't opened yet, that line to Arvada and Wheat Ridge. When can taxpayers in Metro Denver expect it to open?
5: Well, obviously, we're incredibly disappointed at the uh, action of the of the Public Utilities Commission. We, we filed amendments. Uh, to our g-line crossings so that we could get out and complete our testing of those crossings and so we were uh, we were very eager to get that testing underway and then uh, hopefully be able to open that line but with without the permission to get out there and do the testing um, we we don't really know um, what that means for us schedule wise right now other than we're on hold we're really eager and looking forward to getting back in front of the commission with presenting them with uh, really, the solid technical information that we have to hopefully uh, reach a reach a resolution and a decision that's favorable, so we can move this line forward. It is it is unfortunate that you know we've made this two billion dollar investment in the Eagle Project. That's all our all our commuter rail lines, and the fact that we've had the G Line ready to go for a year and not be able to open it is incredibly frustrating for us. And we know that it's incredibly frustrating for all of our stakeholders. And, and that's who I really feel for. It's, uh, it's really unfortunate for them, but you know, we're working as diligently as we possibly can to uh, put our data and, and our case together and to uh, uh, get that back in front of the commission. Indeed, this
0: leaves the cities of Wheat Ridge and Arvada with new transit-oriented developments, you know, apartments and offices, but no transit. Uh, how are you
5: working with city leaders there? Well, we're working very closely with those stakeholders, and we're in direct communication with them on a very regular basis. And we're talking about uh, exactly where the project is. We're being very transparent on how the crossings uh, operate and where we are with the regulatory processes, not only with the Public Utilities Commission, but also with the Federal Railroad Administration. That's
0: right. You have to get that state and that federal sign-off. Uh, And as I said, the PUC's decision this week means you'll have to keep flaggers at crossings for the airport train and the B-Line to Westminster. Uh, This has been an issue since the train to the plane opened in April of last year. And uh, uh, it makes me want to ask you a bigger picture question about public-private partnerships, because RTD here is working with a consortium uh, that built these lines, Denver Transit Partners, In an era where there are so many more public-private partnerships and presumably more on the horizon because the state has a tight budget and can't afford to do the capital outlays themselves for big projects, highway projects, transit projects, does all this give you a lack of confidence in public-private partnerships?
5: No, Ryan. I believe that uh, public-private partnerships, or P3s, are a great delivery tool and and a great mechanism for government organizations and others to deliver big infrastructure projects, uh, I'm still a supporter of them. Definitely, our concessionaire, Denver Transit Partners, which consists of uh, Fluor, um, yeah, Balfour Beatty Rail, mm-hmm. and then also uh, John Lang. You know, they're uh, uh, you know they they are are committed to getting this project a, across the line, uh, and we're and we're we're still committed to the P3 delivery model. But how do you account for the fact that they haven't been able to deliver what was promised on time? Well, they are utilizing a, a newer technology, which is a wireless uh, communication to the Greg Brossings, which is uh, something that, that I understand is really uh, not all that prevalent across, across the industry. And uh, due to that wireless communication and then also the, just the complexity of our system, the number of station stops, the number of grade crossings that all have to be integrated, and the fact that all of these systems have to be integrated with positive train control, which is a new safety uh, mandate that that came from Congress, it results in a in an incredibly complex system. And so in this system, the system, the way it is designed is to have a, a little bit of a buffer time right in front of the design time of, of about five seconds and then a buffer time of about 15 seconds uh, after the design time, and uh, almost all of the train trips arrive within that within that buffer time, and so that is you know that's where the where the system is now. I I think we're I think we're very close at getting through the regulatory processes, uh, albeit this was a, a great setback for us to to hear the commission's uh, decision yesterday. It sounds
0: as though you place some blame on the Public Utilities Commission for making this decision, as opposed to on RTD f- or Den. Its transit partners here uh, for not delivering what, what was promised. Um, what, 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 yeah, to help me understand that.
5: No, Ryan, that that's not the case at all. Okay. I, I, I'm simply just I'm simply just stating the fact that you know, in, in, in my opinion, it's it's an unfortunate decision. You know, I, I think we've got more work to do to uh, provide more technical information and bring in some other. Uh, objective evidence to, you know, to help make the case that this design is a, is a workable design and that it's a, that it's a safe design. Uh, so I, let, let me be incredibly clear. I, I do not uh, blame anyone. Uh, all of the responsibility for getting this project across the line sits squarely with our concessionaire and with the RTD team.
0: I want to move to a different topic. RTD is losing out on money because of an error in how a bill was drafted during the last legislative session. Uh, It has hit other special taxing districts around the state as well. The governor called a special session for next week to fix this mistake. Some Republicans have balked, in part because some of them think that the fix requires voter approval, not just legislative action. Uh, If the fix is not quick, uh, would you have to
5: cut service at RTD? Ryan, thanks for that question around the the marijuana sales tax. Uh, The question about would we have to cut service or not... Uh, the impact to us, uh, we, we estimate right now the impact annually is about $6 million a year. So right now we do not have a plan or we do not have uh, a plan in, in place to reduce service levels because of the of the marijuana uh, sales tax that we're not receiving. But let me just put it in perspective that if it was something that, that we were going to do, that, that $6 million annually – uh, a year, if we were to do a service reduction on that, that would negatively impact about forty five hundred patrons that uh, would not have service if we have to go down uh, that the the service uh, reduction road, which you know we don 't plan to do right now and and by the way that you know that six million dollars is is more than the than the four point four million dollar service proposal reduction that we have out for public uh, for public comment right now so i I just like to put that uh, those numbers out there in terms of you know, helping give everyone a tangible piece of what that would really mean uh, if we had to go down that road. But, but again, let me be clear, we don't have any plans uh, to reduce service based on uh, the fact that we're not receiving that marijuana sales tax revenue right is, now.
0: Is the subtext of what I hear you saying, listen up lawmakers, 4,500 people will be impacted by service if you don't figure this out next week?
5: It, it, it could be up to 4,500 people could be impacted, you know, if we need to look at service reductions. And, and, okay. and so I, I think that's just a more helpful way to understand it, uh, you know, in terms of people and not in dollars.
0: Your agency also runs bus lines across Metro Denver, but I understand there's a significant driver shortage. Streets Blog reports that RTD didn't run about 775 hours of scheduled bus service in August alone. Uh, that's nearly 10 times more than the same period last year. Um, I have to think that that means some riders might get stranded if scheduled bus service isn't operating. How how are you ad- addressing this driver shortage,
5: Ryan? We do have a driver shortage, and it's uh, it's really unfortunate. And and in this environment in Colorado in the Denver metro area, where we have two point three two point four percent unemployment, uh, it's incredibly uh, challenging for us to be able to recruit and and retain. Uh, bus operators and rail operators, uh, but let me tell you a few of the things we've we 've put into place uh, to help with that so uh, even last year we we put in some incentives in terms of uh, some some wage increases uh, for operators that operate split shifts and and other kinds of shift differentials uh, up to two dollars an hour for people that operate uh, split shifts. We put in a, a sign on bonus that uh, is paid out over time and a referral bonus to help us with the recruiting. Uh, we're also also another thing we did earlier this year is is we gave you know outside of um, our bargaining agreement we gave every every light rail operator and every bus operator a dollar an hour increase uh, through our amended budget process to try to um, you know even get our recruitment and our packet as competitive as possible across what we offer in terms of wages and benefits. And any sign that you know, that's working not- so far, though?
0: Any sign that that's making a difference?
5: Um. Well, our recruitment is strong the uh, The area that is the most challenging is is the retention and, and this is what i was what I was going to get towards is um, we 're also looking at things to make the job easier once the employees uh, are on board because the you know the uh, workers that work split shifts and things it re- requires them to work a very long day. And you know we want to make improvements in the quality of life for our employees as as best we can so um, we're we 're working on on ways to reduce the number of split shifts that that we run, and we 're working on um, the the duration of those those split shifts to try to reduce the actual shift that employees work so we 're running various models right now to be able to t- to take a look at that and see if that 's going to be fiscally sustainable for us to do and, and you know we're looking at we 're looking forward to Uh, hopefully putting some good things in front of our our workers uh, soon.
0: RTD's general manager, Dave Genova, is with me. He's joining us from his office in Denver. While there's a lack of drivers for buses on RTD's two newest light rail lines, there's a shortage of riders, uh, much less than you projected on the W line to Golden and the R line to Aurora. And so your agency is proposing cuts in service. And uh, I I wonder why projections for ridership were so far off.
5: Well, it's true, Ryan, that uh, on our W line and on the R line that our our ridership numbers are are below what we had hoped or or what we've uh, projected. Uh, You know, the W line and the R line have some interesting operating characteristics uh, as far as uh, how they operate and what speeds they operate at and, and the travel times for those two lines. So we think that um, you know those longer longer travel trips uh, are definitely uh, an impact on ridership. But the good news for the W line is it continues to rise. It's it's not quite where uh, we want it to be, but over time we have been experiencing uh, ridership increases on the W. So it, it is really improving. And then on the R line, of course, you know it's it's a it's a very new line. Uh, and it's, uh, its ridership is the lowest of all of our lines right now, and that was one of the reasons that our team in looking at, you know, just being fiscally responsible and looking at the service we put out versus the ridership and the demand uh, put some uh, service proposals on the street for public comment. And let me just talk about that process for a moment. Well, actually, let me me just, we have very very
0: limited time. So I just want to say that low ridership obviously affects the the bottom line for RTD. And I want to say that we reached out to the mayor of Aurora, Steve Hogan, who says he was surprised by the prospect of reduced service on the R line. If we'd gotten just a phone call that said, hey, we're going to take a look at ridership and we'd really like to share those numbers with you and talk
2: about it before we go into any kind of a public process, we maybe would have been able to talk about a lot of things and how we address it and maybe how
0: we, we the city of Aurora, could be helpful. Helpful in perhaps increasing ridership, promoting the line. Uh, can you just speak briefly to the communication aspect of this?
5: Yes. Well, Aurora is a great partners of our uh, partner of ours. I was just with Mayor Hogan last week. We were on a panel together and uh, talked a lot about the success of uh, how partnerships have been part of uh, the regional success of the Denver metropolitan area, and we, we continue to be good partners there. Uh, we are uh, aligning our communications teams between RTD and the Aurora staff, you know, working on you know, how, how can we promote and, and market and together uh, to try to improve ridership on, on the line.
0: But cuts may still be necessary to service along that line.
5: Well, maybe or or not. So let me just say that when we do our, our service changes, and we do these three times a year, we make minor adjustments to our service plan. And We call them run boards, and we do those, uh, like I said, three times a year to address shifting demands and things. But I want to point out that it's a public process. So we go out with a proposal uh, to the public, and then we get uh, public input on on the proposal. And I I can tell you that in almost every case, we make changes to the proposal based on public input. And uh, I would not be surprised that uh, the public would see something very different uh, on the R-line that will be put in front of the board, than what was proposed in the uh, what's getting public comment right now.
0: Got it. And so you're asking people to speak up if they're afraid that this might affect their commute times or the time it takes them to get, for instance, to the airport from where they are. Dave, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Dave Genova is General Manager and CEO of RTD, Denver's Regional Transportation District. Long before the controversy surrounding NFL players taking a knee during the national anthem, a promising point guard for the Denver Nuggets made waves. Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf refused to stand, just like some of today's athletes, and he paid a price. I spoke with a sports journalist last year about the Abdul-Raouf story. Dave Zirin had just interviewed the retired basketball player for his podcast, Edge of Sports. And Zyron has written a book about sports and politics. Dave, welcome to the program.
4: Oh, It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's go back to the 1990s when Mahmoud abdul Rauf was playing for the Nuggets and refused to stand for the national anthem. I understand you saw that on TV?
4: Yeah, I saw it on TV, um, but it but this is 1996. It's before the days of uh, NBA satellite packages or anything that you could find on the Internet. So what it really involved was reading that Raouf was doing these protests and then gathering in my dormitory common room to hear the latest commentary uh, from ESPN about it. And I'll never forget one of the talking heads on ESPN said, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf must consider himself to be one of those athlete activists like Muhammad Ali or Billie Jean King. And I remember sitting there, 20 years old, and thinking to myself, what the heck is an athlete activist? And that's where, where really, you know, I started studying that connection between sports and politics. It all started because Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf took a stand.
0: Yeah, this in many ways shaped your career. And you tried to interview Abdul-Raouf for many years and finally got your wish just recently. He now lives in Atlanta. And um, I want to thank you for, for sharing some of that interview with us. Here's what he told you about what was going through his mind before he decided he'd
2: refuse to stand. There were things I wanted to say, things that I saw that was unjust. But why am I, why am I afraid? Why am I a coward? Why can't I say this? And I had to slowly begin a process of doing that, which eventually led to the flag.
0: So it sounds like he was really conflicted in the time prior. I guess put this into some context for us. How unusual was his decision back in 1996?
4: Well, it's extremely unusual because those previous people I mentioned, Muhammad Ali and Billie Jean King, or the people we're speaking about today, like Colin Kaepernick and other NFL players, they're making their stands in the context of a movement. They're making their stands in the context of people outside the stadium raising some demands, and then those demands and that movement ricocheting onto the field of athletics where it then gets amplified even further. Mahmoud Abdul Raouf is really part of a different kind of political tradition, the tradition of somebody who reads, the tradition of somebody who's thinking in, in a solitary uh, situation and then believes that based upon what he's read, he really has no choice but to act. Now the pitfalls of that path, of course, is that there was no cover for Mahmoud Abdul Raouf. He makes his stand, and he was immediately isolated, fined and punished. Uh, for taking uh, that risk. And so it was very unusual for its time in the mid-90s and is very unusual in the history of sports and politics.
0: Interesting. In some ways, he, he kind of jumped without a net. And Abdul Raouf told you about his motivations. He said back then he began to have issues with the U.S. flag and the national anthem.
2: These things are, are symbols, and I think they reflect the character of a nation of people or a government. And if it's supposed to represent these things of freedom and equality and justice for all, and and I don't see what that's being necessarily represented, then I couldn't see myself honestly standing up for something like that.
0: He had been, at that point, a recent convert to uh, Islam. What else did he tell you about his motivations?
4: Well, it's so interesting because, I mean, at the time, that really uh, subsumed a lot of the coverage, like the fact that he was a convert. To Islam, as if that explained the motivation. But in interviewing Raouf, um, it's really a a writer of uh, of Jewish descent, uh, Noam Chomsky, who shaped his political thinking about this. Noam Chomsky is a political theorist who writes a lot about U.S. foreign policy in terms of it being um, an empire, particularly in regards and in connection to the Middle East. And Raouf, in reading Noam Chomsky, he he was very shaped and affected by this, and he started to believe, as he said to me, that what was happening uh, was a hidden war. And to remain silent would be the same as saying he was on the side of the United States and he believed that what the United States was doing was was morally and politically wrong.
0: He was fined, as you mentioned, suspended from a game for his refusal to stand. And here's how he described to you what happened when the Nuggets head coach called him into his office.
2: He begins to tell me, say, well, hey, they want you to, Stand are they going to suspend you? I said, well, Bernie, tell them to do what they have to do. And I'm so naive at the time. I'm like, well, look, can I go now and get dressed? He said, no, you're suspended now. I said, now? He said, yes. I said, well, can I put my clothes on and and go support the team? No, you're not even allowed on the premises. So I left. And then that's when it it hit the news and the rest is history. The
0: rest is history. What, What was the fallout beyond the fine and suspension for him?
4: Well, he found himself slowly phased out of the league. Uh, his minutes became less. He uh, was bounced from a couple of teams during the duration of the existing contract. Because remember, the NBA has uh, guaranteed contracts. And it's actually, at the, in the mid-90s, it was very rare for a team to just cut a player because they would have to eat the entirety of their contract. Yeah. So he was slowly phased out from team to team until he ended up um, on the, I believe, the Vancouver Grizzlies, a team that doesn't even um, exist anymore. It's now in Memphis. And his last year in the league, he even led the NBA in points per minute. Uh, he's just incredibly effective scorer, and yet he couldn't find a home in the National Basketball Association. He was able to play overseas into his early forties. Uh, yet by the time he was in his uh, late 20s, really, early 30s, he was done in the NBA. And he's long maintained, and observers have long maintained, that his political stance is what left him without a home in the league.
0: Not his ability to play the game.
4: Not his ability to play the game.
0: I think I read in another outlet that he had his home burned to the ground, uh, Mah- Mahmoud abdul yeah. Rauf
4: that 's exactly right, um, his home and in, 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 um, is in Gulfport uh, mississippi where he where he grew up, uh, and not only was it was it burned, but uh, the the local sheriff uh, did not investigate it as an arson, um, which was something that the Raoul family strongly disagreed with uh, so so there were these kinds of personal repercussions and family repercussions, which i don 't think he expected when he took his stand but That really makes it all the more remarkable, given everything that we've discussed, that he maintains to this day that he has absolutely no regrets.
0: He has absolutely no regrets. That came as a surprise to you?
4: It came as a surprise to me because I've interviewed people like uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, who raised their fist at the 68 Olympics, and many other athletes who've taken political stands. And there's always that sort of sense of just uncertainty about like the path not taken and the path not taken is of course the path of silence and the path of fame and the path of wealth. And, um, and so there's as you can understand, it'd be very human to have sort of a lingering sense of what could have been, but that's just not something that Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf holds to his heart. And he's sort of feels vindicated by this latest round of protests in the NFL and, the. Uh, renewed interest in, in him. It, it seems to have emboldened him, given him strength, given him confidence. I find him to be a very uh, magnetic speaker, and he seems to have a more confidence in his voice to speak. Um, he was raised both with a deep stutter and Tourette syndrome. There's no sense of that when he speaks whatsoever. Um, there's just a sense of sort of serene confidence.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And in light of recent protests, at uh, what have largely been NFL games, but some other sporting events as well, uh, at the National Anthem. We're speaking about an incident some decade ago uh, that happened... 20 a, years. 20 years, sorry, yes. <laughs> it's it's hard to believe sometimes how far back 1996 <laughs> is, my goodness. Time flies. Uh, but we're we're speaking about a, a former Denver Nugget uh, who did not stand at the Anthem, and it, it really cost him his career uh that is uh Abdul Raouf and and you were able to interview him as we said uh Dave uh, Zirin at the Nation and the Edge of Sports uh, podcast um does he have a response to people who think that not standing is is offensive to those who fought for the flag or fought for the f- what the flag represents how, how does he respond to that
4: well, I mean, his response to that is that, you know, it, without whether we want to admit it or not, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, the standing for the anthem um, is a political act. And if it is a political act, and if this is a society that allows freedom of dissent on the question of politics, then it should be well within uh, the rights of any athlete to not uh, feel like they have to partake in that on a mandatory basis. And I got to tell you what's interesting what's such an interesting twist on this whole debate about everything from Colin Kaepernick to Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf
3: yeah.
4: is one thing that Rauf and Kaepernick are doing is they are actually listening to what the anthem represents and taking it very, very seriously. And you, you sort of counterpose that to... You know obviously, like fans in the stands who might be getting a beer or going to the bathroom or other players who you know their their minds are elsewhere and they 're looking all over the stadium or they 're thinking about the game or they 're sitting on the bench stretching out and it 's kind of i think ironic that at this sort of solemn political moment people are taking it as seriously as the values that the flag and anthem are supposed to represent, and yet somehow this has been a cause for criticism instead of frankly appreciation.
0: I mean, is what you're saying that sitting out the national anthem is a a way of honoring it?
4: It's a way of honoring what it's supposed to represent.
0: Dave, thanks so much. Thank you. Dave Zirin, his sports editor at The Nation. We spoke last year about Mahmoud Abdul Raouf, the former Denver Nuggets player, protested during the national anthem back in the 90s. Just recently, it was reported that the current Nuggets coach and some players are talking about how they plan to participate or not in protests taking place now. Their preseason starts in just over a week. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm CPR Warner. And on Facebook, we are CPR News. This is Colorado Public Radio.